Hey, Jay, were there X-Men in 1602? Sure there were, but not under that name. Fair enough. Mutants, though. Oh, absolutely. The original five-in-one place, Ethan. Fighting Magneto? More in theory than immediate practice. Why? What was he up to? Running the Spanish Inquisition. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 243 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And gentle listeners, welcome to a hell of a milestone. This is about as close as we're going to get um, as far as release date to the fifth anniversary of this, this podcast. That's right, we have been around for long enough to be in kindergarten. That's right, we have been making this show for five freaking years, which kind of blows my mind. Yeah, that's really weird. It's really awesome is what it is. This thing started out as such a sort of off, offhand inside joke, and it grew so fast that I still kind of feel like we're running after it. I should say before we get further, by the way, that we share a birthday week with one of our listeners. So a happy, a very happy birthday to Catherine, whose birthday is April 19th, so very close to the podcast zone. Yes, indeed. We had the pleasure of meeting her at the uh, last convention in Seattle. So, as far as this episode, uh, how are we going to do this, Jay? Well, back in April 2014, we started a podcast, and we wanted that podcast to be a means of access to something that we loved a lot but knew could be really forbidding. And a byproduct of how long the podcast has lasted is that now the podcast itself can be kind of forbidding. I mean, 242 episodes, now 243 is a lot to catch up on. And one of the things I was thinking we might do with the fifth anniversary episode is kind of give a greatest hits reel, a sort of a, a Cliff's Notes version of, of what you might want to go back and listen to if you don't want to listen to the whole thing but don't want to come in totally cold. Exactly. So this episode can be that if you're somebody who jumped into the podcast more recently. But if you're somebody who, like us, has been living and breathing X-Men for at least the last five years, we hope that this can be for you what it's going to be for us, which is just a trip to all of the glorious, wonderful, terrible things that we've really enjoyed. Everything from the astonishing, deft use of metaphor and character work in God Loves, Man Kills, to that one time that a green lobster was like super badass after a dinosaur stepped on his best friend. Like it's only happened once. Well, you know, I'm just saying, in that new teaser poster that came out for the upcoming era of X-Men, we do have a green lobster by Charles Xavier's foot. It's true. It's true. I'm excited about that part. I don't know if it's going to turn into anything, but I really hope it does. So, yeah, in compiling this, uh, this list of bullet points that we will ramble on about for the next hour or so... I was just reminded at how many freaking highlights there have been over the 30 years of X-Men we've covered. And not just the big stuff either, just so many little stories that work so well. And there are so many things that I feel like have fed into the weird internal canon of the podcast to become running jokes. So we, we've got some kind of Patient Zero episodes for a few of those as well. But God, do you, do you want to do the actual reminiscing? I, I, feel like, I feel like we should have some kind of flashback music and then like a sepia version of us. 
So, yeah, just assume that we're, um, in sepia right now. It's an audio-only format, so who knows? We might be. Um, so, we started the show. We started the show in April of 2014. Where were we? We were both in Portland then. I was writing for Wired. You were at Dark Horse, as you are now. Also, we were married, and my name was, was Rachel. So, you know, some things stayed the same, some things have changed, but yeah, you knew Bobby Roberts, who was like kind of a big deal geek personality in Portland. He'd been doing a show called Court and Fatboy with Court Weber for years on the radio. He'd been podcasting for a long time, and he incredibly generously offered to show us the ropes with podcasting and also to edit and produce our show and let us use his equipment. Like, we cannot overstate how vital to this show existing Bobby Roberts was back then. Yeah, it would definitely, definitely not be around if if he had not been where he was and if he had, hadn't been that generous with his time and his skills. And at that, that point, we were recording, um, he, had, he had an office above Portland's Roseway Theater. Yeah, I still remember uh, wiring that for Ethernet with a coworker of mine so we could have better internet access up there. And it turned out we stopped recording like right after that. So it was all for naught, although I hope somebody's using that Ethernet up there these days. Yeah, that was a hell of a thing. And then um, while we were still in Portland, gosh, you were you were gone for the third episode. I was. Yeah. So we started with the Silver Age, right? We had the Silver Age as episodes number one, number two and number four. And yeah, I went to C2E2 to uh, work that convention for my day job. And so for this podcast that at the time just seemed like a hobby. So whatever, but has now turned into such a huge part of both of our lives. That feels really weird. I mean, Chris Sims did a great job with episode three, but still weird. I remember being so intensely nervous at the idea of having a guest co-host because the idea of having a podcast period was, was completely weird to me. And I was so freaked out at the idea of, of, talking for an audience, but you and I had basically been having variations on these conversations for decades, and, and, and I knew we could handle that, but but the idea of, of bringing someone else on was just terrifying, and if you go back, man, I haven't listened to that episode in for, forever, but I remember thinking just that I sounded completely offbeat the whole time. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we'd been talking X-Men for just so many years, we, we had that shit down. Yeah, um, and now we obsessively schedule any kind of guest stuff months in advance if we can. <laughs> Yup. But back then, the show itself was really different, too. I mean, I was actually looking at our outline for episode one, which we still have in Google Drive. And yeah, it was just like a few random bullet points after a cold open and then some listener questions after. And the listener questions in the cold opens have stayed the same. But like structurally, it was a completely different show. For me, I think one of the really big differences in how much detail we put in the outlines has been whether or not we have the comics with us in hard copy. Because for the first many, many episodes, we were working from hard copies of the comics. We were working from things that I could post note annotate. And that's no longer the case. We're working almost entirely digitally now, which means that if I want to make sure that something, to, to reference something, I've got to make sure it's down in the outline. Yeah, that's very true. It also probably helps, though, that we glossed over, like, the entire Silver Age over the course of three episodes. In our defense, um, it was the Silver Age, I, I kind of, I still kind of like that because modern readers and folks coming in, I think are way more likely to be familiar with the Silver Age stuff through one of the retellings through something like X-Men Season 1 or X-Men First Class, or not at all, or to have jumped in with the Claremont era. And even, and I mean, a lot of what we do is talking about continuity and the Silver Age people just weren't keeping super close track. 
yeah, I mean, important things would happen, but it wasn't the same incredibly convoluted web that Chris Claremont built. And honestly, for me, we said this then, and I still stand by it, like, the Silver Age of X-Men is they're really enjoyable comics. I think they're absolutely part of the core canon of what X-Men are. But for me, X-Men didn't start feeling like X-Men until Giant Size X-Men number one. It didn't start feeling like the X-Men that I fell in love with, that I find so much meaning in, not just enjoyment. Yeah, agreed. Man, um, you, you mentioned in, in the notes here that our, our structure's kind of been fully formed from the start, and I realized that that means that with this episode... Um, I know you've done three, so I've written 240 cold opens. That's that's so many cold opens. I can confidently state that that is more cold opens than any human being other than you has ever done for an X-Men podcast that is like ours. You, you kind of painted yourself into a corner there. I'm just saying it's very impressive and you get first place. It's, yeah, man, people ask what the hardest thing is about the show, and it's, it's definitely um, trying to avoid repeating topics in cold opens. God, seriously. It's it's fairly brutal. Thankfully, X-Men is full of enough bananas stuff that, you know, there's still there's still a deep well from which to draw. Yeah, there really, really, really is. So also looking at the early, early episodes, we got into Claremont so fast that a lot of what I think of as like the really central stuff is very early on. I mean, looking at the Dark the Dark Phoenix saga was our twelfth and thirteenth episode. That was like three months, four months in. I know it's baffling and that was just such, I mean, it's such a seminal, gigantic X-Men story. I think that was where a lot of people realized, whoa, whoa, this comic, it's not just like a good comic, but this is a big deal. So I kind of want to just go chronologically through favorites. Um, we've talked about things that have changed. Remember when we were hosted at Comics Alliance? Oh, yeah, they, they put us on YouTube and that was strange. Yeah, that was really odd. Um, but our first episode with them was number 18, and that was Curse of the Mutants, which is still one of my favorites, and one of my favorite terrible, terrible, terrible stories. Right. We covered Curse of the Mutants, even though it didn't come out until like decades after where our current coverage was, because we had just covered the standalone X-Men story where the X-Men first encountered Dracula, yes. and where Dracula gives Storm a scarf monogrammed with the letter D, and we kept making jokes about how Dracula totally gave Storm the D, because we're us in a way that I don't feel like has really changed over the course of this many episodes. Yeah, yeah, that happened. But yeah, um, Curse, of the, Curse of the Mutants is notable primarily as being the story in which Cyclops tells Dracula to follow his heart. Well, and that episode is notable for being the origin of Sexy Dracula, one of my favorite recurring podcast whatevers. Oh, God, you're absolutely right. And the entire concept of Castle Sexy Dracula came out of that. Exactly. You know, the house that we both lived in and I still do, Castle Sexy Dracula, is basically named after a thing from episode freaking 18. So Curse of the Mutants comes between what I think of as the two big sagas. And this was my first really big surprise on the podcast, was going back to the Brood Saga that soon after we'd covered the Dark Phoenix Saga and coming away realizing that it was a much, much better comic. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. The Dark Phoenix Saga is phenomenal and one of the greatest comic stories ever put together. But the Brood Saga, I think, is an even better X-Men story. The Brood Saga is also very, very much where Chris Claremont comes into his own as a writer, where we really see him establish the voice and stretch the voice that he's going to be using um, for more of his run. And I, yeah, I just think it's phenomenally, phenomenally good. 
And one of the things I like about it, especially if you're going to compare it to the Dark Phoenix Saga, which is always dangerous, is that the Dark Phoenix Saga is certainly not entirely, but largely about Jean and Scott. The Brood Saga is about everybody. We have yeah. that amazing conversation between Kitty and Piotr where she's like, hey, if I'm going to die, can we at least, like, you know, do it? And he's like, oh, I mean, that sounds cool, but, like, you're a kid, so no. I, I also got to, got to do an extended weird riff, which has become one of my favorite things to get to do on this podcast. Right, that's where you did the um, the things they carried riff, and it was... Yeah, the Tim O'Brien thing. I'm so pleased. That still makes me smile when I think about it, Yeah. Oh, man. I'm still really, really proud of that. (laughs) As well you should be. But yeah, we also had, you know, the X-Men just knowing they were going to die and fighting on, and we just got to see the core of who all of them were. We got to see Logan, like, shirtless and covered in alien parts in, honestly, I think one of the more initially defining stories he ever had. I think the Logan we see in the Brood Saga was sort of the genesis of everything that came after. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think we saw in that story all... An incredible character study of Carol Danvers, too. Yes, yes, so many people forget, although I hope they remember, you know, more now, now that Carol Danvers is more in the popular consciousness, that Carol was basically an X-Man for, like, a really pivotal era. Yeah, or at least was with the team. So, what were the other big ones? We jumped way, way, way ahead right after the Brood Saga um, to do Scott and Jean's wedding. Right, because that coincided with our 10th wedding anniversary. wah. wah. I mean, okay, like, I mean, we should just talk about this. So it's a little weird that one of our biggest, most important episodes was to mark the 10th anniversary of a marriage we are no longer in. But appropriately, we did go and cover another ultimately, you know, ended marriage. So I I feel like the metaphor still stands pretty well. It totally works. But, (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, so... This is totally going to tie in. Bear with me here. So tattoos, right? Some people get tattoos that later on they're like, you know, I would not have gotten that tattoo the way I got that tattoo. Like that guy our friend Ryan knew who had a full back tattoo of Dave Mustaine's face. Like that guy. Uh, Oh, geez, was our marriage that flawed? Was our marriage as flawed as a full back tattoo of Dave Mustaine's face? I don't know about flawed, but I'm not sure if it was that daring or epic. (laughs) Perhaps not. But, you know, the fact is, like, Everywhere you've been is a part of where you now are. And so while it is a little awkward, you know, to have that be one of the core Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men canon episodes, it's a big part of who we were as people at the time, as podcasters at the time. And like, I'm kind of really glad it's there. One of the other things that that's sort of an interesting, um, I guess, sort of preserved an amber moment for is that for the first long time on the podcast um we we discovered after a point that listeners didn't realize that we were that we were together um that we we were used to a context in which we were sort of a social unit and the idea that people wouldn't pick up on that hadn't even occurred to us and so i this this came after a lot of oh my god are rachel and miles dating posts and questions (laughs) which was was pretty funny um let's see going on oh we had you know the new mutants would have started up not too long after that Right, because they essentially came right out of the Brood Saga, where the X-Men were presumed dead in space. And um, with episode 32, we got to the Demon Bear Saga, to the stretch really where New Mutants just becomes the groundbreaking book it was. Because that's where Bill Sienkiewicz became its artist. And I still remember being a kid and just not knowing what to make of Bill Sienkiewicz. And I got to say, coming back to it both as an adult, but also as somebody who was slowly learning to be something of a critic, you know, working with you, Jay, 
it was a completely different experience. Like my mind was blown in a way it was not prepared to be blown when I was younger. That's an awkward sentence, but we're going to leave it in. But the fact is like the, we could spend, you know, minutes and minutes talking about the first page of the first issue in Sienkiewicz's run, where there's the image of the demon bear that sort of melds into the checkered Miles, quilt. That- Miles, we have spent minutes talking about that first page, and you can all hear us do so in episode 32. Well, that's true. But point is, it was just so cool coming to a story that I had now learned enough about craft to be able to read as if it was a completely new story. So we also found some hidden treasures over time, stories that either we'd forgotten or we hadn't come across before that we fell for pretty hard. And the first one of those was Beauty and the Beast. That was in episode 35. And that was that was that was the, the weirdly amazing miniseries about Dazzler and the Beast with Doctor Doom's shitty kid as as its villain. Um, and the amazing weird little cameos from the Heartbreak Hotel, the best the best setting never further explored. Right. I remember because this was a comic that neither of us had ever read before until we we started the podcast and decided to cover, I mean, not everything, but like most X-Men things. And I still remember when we were reading it and we just kept like going to each other and being like, look at this thing. Look at this thing. What the hell is even happening here? Alexander Von Doom has like the worst best hat. It was pretty bad. It's a pretty bad hat. That was during our period of like peak obsession with Marvel hats. Uh, it was, it's true. Yeah. But that's one of my favorite things about this podcast is that we get to just discover new stuff ourselves, whether it's, you know, a new appreciation for Bilson Kavich's art or, you know, a series that we'd never read and we're just delighted existed. And that N. Nascenti later turned out to have forgotten having written. That's always weird when we remember more about stories than the people who wrote them. Well, no, it makes sense because, you know, for us, this was this life-changing transcendent moment and for them it was wednesday i was gonna say for m bison it was tuesday but i guess he's not here right well i'm thinking in terms of comic release dates so wednesday and then there were the epic challenges we undertook like (laughs) i don't know in episode 43 covering secret wars one and two in a single episode yeah that's 21 issues worth of content that that episode is also home to one of my greatest lingering regrets with regards to this podcast we get asked about that sometimes you know what would you have done differently and i fought for this initially and i let you argue me out of it and i still really wish that i had dug my heels in and fought harder to call this episode the passion of jim shooter (laughs) because <laughs> that was I, that, that was a good title that was a really good title it was a really good title perhaps we should have gone for it it's just like i don't know i i offend religious people enough already i didn't want to do it like more i mean i don't really feel like our calling it that would have been more fundamentally offensive than the content we were describing <laughs> that may be true. This is, of course, the story where Spider-Man teaches the Beyonder to poop. Now made official and textual canon, thanks to Al Ewing, by the way. <laughs> Thank you, Al, for this and so many things. Yes, this is how we live now. And then a couple issues after Secret Wars in number 45, we decided to go from covering 21 issues in an episode to covering just one. We'd done that once before. We did that um, with... X-Men 137 and I think episode 12. But this time it wasn't even a giant size issue. I think it was it was just a regular one and what made it so so worth doing that was that breathtaking Barry Windsor Smith art. 
Like that, it, that issue still just blows my mind. It does. Yeah. And it was such a cool jumping off point just to talk about Storm as a character because Storm is such an incredibly multifaceted, nuanced, complex character. This was a woman who was defined by her badass weather powers and being worshipped as a goddess for them. But she was also a thief when she was a kid, and now she had no powers, but she did have a mohawk. And it was all about her just, like, learning to adjust to this. Like, that kind of radical reinvention of a character, you don't see a lot of that, at least not to that degree, with that prominent of a character. And God, it worked. A few episodes later in number 48... The Asgardian Wars, the intersection of two of my favorite things in the world, 80s X-Men and 80s Thor. When I was a kid, this was one of the coolest things ever, and as an adult, yeah, turns out, still one of the coolest things ever. Because not only is it two great tastes that go great together, but it was phenomenally well executed, and like, super important to continuity, and Art Adams did the art, and everything about it was amazing. So speaking of amazing, I want to jump forward a little bit to episode 76, and that was our first live show ever. And we lucked out so hard with the lineup we got. That was with Anne Nascenti, Jeff Parker, and Chris Yost, um, who were incredibly, incredibly good guests and panelists and did what you hope that panel guests will do, which is most of the hard work. Um, but it was also the first time that we really that we had a live show that, that people could, could come out for, and the first time that we tabled at a convention. And it was really, really amazing actually seeing you appear in person. Yeah, I mean, it blows me away every time we're talking to a room full of people. But then, I mean, we were still so new. We'd been going for, you know, more than a year, but still not that long. And seeing numbers in your statistics, seeing emails in your inbox does not compare to seeing a bunch of humans listening to you ramble on about X-Men. And we went straight from that into so much other good stuff. There was Fallen Angels in number 77, and in 78 there was The Eye Killers, which, okay, jokes about not masturbating with cactuses aside, Eye Killers kind of highlights one of my favorite sub-things that we do on the show and one of my favorite things to get to do on the show which is tangential research because we explain the X-Men, but occasionally um, there will be a hook to something in literature, something in mythology, something in what would have been the present day of the comic that's coming out. That's got a lot of really cool stuff attached to it. And it's got room for sort of a deep dive of its own. And the episodes where we've gotten to do that, I think are consistently among my favorites. I'm thinking of that one. I'm thinking of meltdown, which is going to come much, much later. There was that one time I calculated the body mass index of a celestial. There was. In number 97 and 98, we dove into some comics that I had only partially read, that being the old British run of Captain Britain. I'd read the Jamie Delano second half of it, but I'd never read Alan Moore's Captain Britain as much as Excalibur references the hell out of it, and that was a treat, getting to go back and read comics that basically started in the British superhero equivalent of the Sunday funnies and see them develop into something so textured and seminal and Alan Mori. So you're talking about 97 and 98, which brings us to, I guess, what was the first really big milestone of this show. That was our hundredth episode. And we had been hoping and we had been trying to figure the, figure out whether we could do this. And we finally sort of pulled the right strings and we got Chris Claremont for our hundredth episode. And Man, that was so cool. We did that. That was real. It was amazing. I mean, the idea that the person we'd been spending months and months and months and months and months talking about the work of, like, 
was cool with talking to us about his work, was cool just rhapsodizing in his like perfectly Claremontian way of, of speaking, way of just describing things in a way that nobody else could uh, about all of that. And then a hundred episodes later, we got Louise Simonson. And I got to say, Chris Claremont is great. He's brilliant. It's amazing talking to him. But he's also one of the people who's been most heavily interviewed about the X-Men over the years. And getting to sit down and actually talk with Louise Simonson was, I, I got to say, that's that's the episode that for me just feels like kind of the podcast going back to its roots in in the most fundamental, phenomenal way. Oh, it was incredible, yeah. I mean, Louise Simonson, I think, wrote some of the comics that were the most special to me as a kid. Uh, you know, later New Mutants, The Exterminators, so much of X Factor. And she was just such a delight to talk to. She's still so excited that people like her work. And of course they like her work. It's incredible. It's so good. And speaking of Simonson's work, um, Going back to the early hundreds, it became a running joke fairly early on in the podcast that we were in the build-up to Inferno because the seeds of that got sown so early, and then the repercussions lasted for so long that it's pretty much basically still always Inferno in here. But our actual Inferno coverage came between episodes 106 and 109, and then 111 and 112. Right. That's where we covered the Exterminators, the main plot of Inferno across X-Men, X-Factor, and New Mutants. I think we did an episode on the fallout of Inferno with Sam Humphreys, which was a lot of fun. We did, yeah. And I mentioned this in our most recent live episode, but Inferno is my favorite crossover. I think it's just exactly what a crossover should be, which is something that, yes, yeah, stands alone as a story that you could read on its own, but that pulls from so many plot threads going from so far back and where everything that happens in that event just feels surprising and inevitable to reuse a phrase. Yeah, and that was one of the events, too, where Dave did a really amazing multi-part illustration that covered the entire crossover. Um, he had done that with Fall of the Mutants before, and he did this again did it again with Inferno, and it was just, it was so cool. Yeah, and this is your periodic reminder that if you don't go to our website, if you just listen to the show, you should go to the website at least now and again to check out David Wynn's illustrations for almost every episode. They are freaking great. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, I mentioned Meltdown before. We hit that in 114, but that's one of the things that I was really, really excited about covering and really, really looking forward to because it's one of those just hidden gems of the X-Universe. It's been one of my favorite stories for a very, very long time. And getting to talk about it and getting to share it and getting Susan on to talk more about the actual reactor physics behind it was, was just awesome. Yeah, what a freaking dream team on that book. Writing by both Simonsons, art by Kent Williams and John J. Muth, like going into so much nuclear stuff that I as a child was baffled by but knew was incredibly important. And I sort of think of that in a pair with a much later um, comic that we covered, which was Wolverine Killing, which also had art by, I think, Williams. Yeah, that was phenomenal as well. And we covered we covered that one, Wolverine Killing, much more recently in episode 227. But um, yeah, Williams' work on that was just phenomenal. And going back to Meltdown, I remember being really nervous about how the listeners would feel about having a guest talk about something that wasn't directly X-Men related for so much of the episode, and response was so positive, and that was so cool and so gratifying. Well, I think what we'd worked out by then pretty solidly is that the people who listened to our show were generally people who liked learning about things, who liked knowing about things, and who liked looking at things 
on levels and at layers that weren't necessarily immediately obvious. And we gambled, and I think it was a, a pretty, pretty low, um, low stakes gamble, or one where I was pretty confident it would come out on our side, that that interest extended beyond X-Men, and it absolutely did. Totally. One of the things we came to not too long after that was, in episodes number 128 and 133, a story that I never expected to become one of my favorites, because I'd read about half of it when I was a kid, and it didn't do a lot for me, but ended up being something that I delight in every time I even think about it. And that's Judgment War. We covered that in 128 and 133. And yeah, it's such a cool, weird kind of one-off thing. And it, it brings Paul Smith, who's one of both of our favorite artists, back to the X-Universe, which was great. And to remind everyone, this was the X-Factor story where the original five X-Men, who were X-Factor at the time, get pulled into this phenomenally well-realized, incredibly complicated alien planet and lose all their memories and get integrated into society. And then there are space gods, but there are also like arena battles and sexy ladies and, and robots. And as you may recall, that pair of episodes was brought to you by CZ-105, featuring 127 straight hours of soft ambient static punctuated by occasional notes on a synthesizer ad free man i gotta say jay your zz 105 running gag like is totally a simpson style rake joke for me like it went from funny to not funny to very funny well, the thing about it as a running gag is that it's much more a running gag for us than it is for the podcast because it's the thing i do as a joke or just to be a jerk when we're just starting up the recording it never actually makes it into the episodes i mean it does here and there we should also remind everyone that Judgment War is the story that ends with Cyclops blasting an entire civilization's worth of sheer willpower out of his face into the thumb of a giant space robot. Yeah, that definitely happened, and that was followed fairly shortly by Psylocke's body transformation and or swap, which was itself followed by another less well-remembered body swap, namely the time Jean Grey got tentacle arms and was pretty into it. Okay, so we know the time Jean Grey got tentacle arms is not, in fact, a significant X-Men story, but no one is ever allowed to forget that. She had tentacle arms, and she was totally chill about it, and then later, Claremont would give Callisto tentacle arms as well, and I don't really know what to make of that, but it was a whole thing. So somewhere in the middle of all of this, um, Trump got elected, and also I came out, and Miles and I split, and a lot of other stuff went on, and eventually... With episode 164, which was live at Rose City Comic Con in 2017, um, we decided that we were going to move away from our generally, we cover the comics, we focus on the comics, the comics are fundamentally political, we're honest about our own biases, but this is not primarily a, po a podcast where we talk current politics. We decided that, honestly, it was probably time to scrap all of that and basically just spend an hour talking about the mutant metaphor, the idea of mutant revolution, and how they related to trying to survive as minorities in Trump's America. Yeah, and that was unsurprisingly kind of a polarizing episode, but I felt then and I still feel that it was it was necessary. Like we couldn't just stay silent with everything that was going on. Yeah, and I will I will uh repeat my PSA from that one, which is that if you think superhero comics were ever apolitical, you're wrong. Go home. Especially X-Men. Right? So that brought us pretty much into the nineties, where the entire line kind of got relaunched and rebuilt and we saw it foundering for a little while kind of trying to catch its footing and then really rising kind of amazingly especially under Fabian Nicesa. 
Yeah, I mean, the 90s reinvention was exciting, you know, with uh, X-Men Volume 2, Number 1, Claremont and Jim Lee, all this big epic stuff, the X-Men coming back together for kind of the first time in many, many years. It's easy to forget that until the 1991 relaunch, these characters had been scattered for, like, the better part of a decade. Yeah, the line was cohesive in terms of marketing and story for the first time in a very long time. Like it it while while it had crossed over now and then before, now it really feels like one big machine, which is I think more to its detriment than its benefit. But honestly, that's still the era we're in. So we're we're still kind of kind of working through those questions. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But I remember when we talked about the 90s, the 90s was sort of what we were dreading because, you know, we're both big 80s X-Men fans, for instance, and the 90s has some dire stuff here and there. Some 90s comics are less good than other comics. There are some very, very rough transitional periods, but there's some amazing stuff coming out of it. What really blew my mind, kind of the the hidden gem of this era that I absolutely didn't expect to love nearly as much as I have and do was X-Force. Right. I remember we first covered X-Force when it launched under Rob Liefeld in number 181 of the show. And it was so bad. It was so bad. I mean, it was fun, but yes, uh, it was not to my personal tastes. All comics are good comics to some people, and I respect that. And then when we weren't looking, it became the spiritual heir to the original New Mutants comic. Yeah, right around episode 205. And this was perhaps not coincidentally... Uh, when Fabian Nicieza was fully handed the reins after Rob Liefeld had moved on. And at that point, all these New Mutants plot elements kept coming back in, but more importantly, these felt like kids in their late teens and early 20s who could feasibly have come from a book like New Mutants. It didn't feel like a complete replacement and reinvention with just lots of guns and pouches, but no, it felt like a book about continuing to grow up. And New Mutants slash X-Force, honestly, it doesn't even matter what age the characters are as long as it's a book about growing up. Yeah, absolutely. Different stages, but the same process and the same the same process of growth as a book and as a part of the line, too. You had a couple of books that I remembered working when I was a kid and certainly still worked upon a reread. You had the all-new, all-different X-Factor, the government version with Peter David and Larry Stroman that we started in number 179. You know, I gotta say, while there are parts of that I love, it did not hold up for me nearly, nearly as well the second time. And that's that's been rare. Usually I've come back to things and found that I, I liked them more upon reread. This one, there were aspects of it that I admired more, but the as the thing as a whole, I think somewhat less. It's kind of the reverse for me. I think as a kid, it was a little too dry for me, both in terms of humor and presentation, but I liked it a lot more as a grown-up, so yeah, I don't know. But I know something we both loved in this era was Alan Davis's freaking run on Excalibur. Oh, damn, yeah, yeah. I loved Excalibur the first time around. The second time around... I feel like I had so much more context, and going back through it with a fine-tooth comb meant really actually appreciating just the the amazing artistry and the amazing technical feats that Alan Davis was performing during the run where he was both writing and drawing. His art throughout is, is stellar and wonderful, but the era where he wrote Excalibur is, I think, the absolute best of that book. Completely agreed. We covered that in uh, starting in number 182, but in 178 and 180, we covered the reinvention of the X-Men with X-Men Volume 2 Number 1 and Uncanny X-Men Number 300, whatever it was, the blue team and the gold team. And this, I think, for a lot of people, especially because of the cartoon, 
this is what X-Men are at their default. I think for a long time, it was giant size X-Men number one, the all new, all different international team from the 70s. But I think in the modern era, most people think what the X-Men are, they're most traditional. And it's this, it's the early 90s, two squads. I guess I, man, it's the, 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 the two squad period is probably my least favorite era so far. But it is iconic as hell. It is, and I think a lot of that iconography, I think it's iconic largely because of the cartoon, because the cartoon did a very good job distilling and simplifying down what was, I think, actually a pretty unwieldy publishing lineup. Still, we did get Executioner's song just a little bit later, and I do love whiny Strife force-feeding his parents from an alternate timeline baby food on the moon. Oh god, Strife is Strife has got to be like the podcast MVP of the early 90s. That very very sharp, very unfortunate boy. He is a terrible delight. Speaking of delights, we found some gloriously strange stuff over the course of the podcast and maybe we should go back just a little here. I mean, I think we we've we talked about some of this as we were going. I we definitely mentioned Wolverine killing, but I do feel like we'd be remiss not to touch on the Iceman miniseries, which we talked about at length in episode 58, and um, which is definitely quite a thing. It sure is. We've talked about that a lot recently. I don't know why it's been so much on our mind. I guess because we're covering J.M. DeMattis stuff uh, over in, in X Factor, but yeah, again, such delight in finding stuff we've never read, and we just sort of look at and go, huh. This sure got published. So that's basically our highlight reel of where we've been. I'm sure if you asked us in two weeks, we'd have a totally different list, or at least a somewhat different list of favorites. Uh, so you want to take a look at where we're going? I guess the, the most immediate thing on the docket is, is the Phalanx Covenant. Yeah, the Phalanx Covenant is the next big story. And the Phalanx Covenant's cool. I really enjoyed its foil covers. I enjoyed Banshee coming back. I enjoyed the fact that it was a crossover structured a little bit more reasonably than some of the ones leading up to it. But mainly, I enjoy that it leads to the launch of Generation X, the true direct successor to the New Mutants, the new, like, class of kids at, well, not the Xavier School, but the Xavier School equivalent at the time. Yeah, and also Emma Frost's full transition to being um, a protagonist in the X-Books. Right, and such cool new characters. I mean, freaking M, freaking Skin, Sink, Husk, you know, that's where she shows up. Jubilee gets a much more central role. Not too long after that, we're going to get Legion Quest, and that is going to lead into my entry point for the X-Men, the weirdest entry point for the X-Men, the Age of Apocalypse. Jay, what was I thinking giving you that as your first X-Men story? I mean, you gave me that and then immediately God Loves Man Kills, and obviously it worked, so... I mean, apparently so, but I still remember being a very small child and hearing that they were ending all the X-Books and relaunching them all in a parallel universe, and I was legit angry and there was no internet to give me like previews for the next few months to tell me that this was a temporary event i thought it was permanent oh buddy but it ended up being so good in fact it ended up being so good that when the x-men line went back to the real world after age of apocalypse ended i stopped reading for years because after that nothing could ever really measure up to the phenomenal colorful outfits the pointless facial tattoos the incredibly gigantic hair of the age of apocalypse and especially not the big event that came after it onslaught so i'm going to be real i mainly know onslaught from its reputation i've only read tiny bits and pieces of it but i'm scared jay 
I have read a ton of it because I had to write a cold open explaining it. Um, it's, it's, oh God, it's real bad, Miles. It is real bad. Um, but it's, I think, I feel like it's going to be one of those stories that's a lot of fun to deconstruct and discuss. And I bet we're going to find some weird gems in there. Well, and when it comes down to it, I kind of feel like it's one of the big boss fights of our podcast. Like, if we can make Onslaught make sense, then we will have truly done a work with our efforts. On at least some level. Now, we're an entire listener-supported podcast, financially, but also structurally. Um, Since the very beginning of the show, you've been sending us your questions. You've been having conversations with us about the X-Men. And now we have a whole, whole bunch of questions from you that we're going to try to rush through right here about the show itself, about us, and stuff that's a little bit further away from what we normally cover. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, How do you manage to keep such a regular podcast release schedule without anywhere near as many gaps, hiatuses, or repeats as even many professional radio shows over the same period? Wait, we get vacations? I'm out of here. Occasionally. I mean, I think mostly it's that we treat it like a job. Like, we we do this every week. We have a regularly scheduled time we record. It probably helps that we have a regular schedule and a regular, you know, thing that we do in every episode. So there's, there's sort of a set to-do list going into every single one. It definitely helps that we have we have Matt doing production. Um, so that's that means that that the the cycle that we need to maintain is basically just the the research and the recording. And part of it, I think, is just that you know five years in, this is still really fun. I mean, it's a hell of a lot of work. Don't get me wrong, but it's fun. Like I enjoy it as an X Men fan. I enjoy it as a nerd in general. I enjoy it as someone who likes positive feedback from listeners. I'm not gonna lie. But Jay, honestly, I also enjoy it just as a time to talk X-Men with the person I've been talking X-Men with for more than half of my life. Yeah, it really hasn't stopped being fun, and that helps tremendously. It does, yeah. Um, But, you know, that being said, if we were to go back, would we choose a weekly schedule again? I'm not sure. I think that if we went back, what I'd probably want to do is work more set breaks into our schedule. It would still be weekly, but like... Four weeks on, one week off or something. That might be reasonable. But we've made our X bed, now we'll X sleep in it. Okay. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Have your favorite characters evolved over the years? For instance, I used to claim Rogue as my favorite as a teen since she was so tough and vulnerable, but since I've matured, I now prefer Kitty Pride's take-no-shit-I-know-what-I'm-doing attitude. Yeah, totally. I mean, for me, like when I was a kid, Iceman was my favorite character because I mainly knew the X-Men, aside from the occasional comic, as, you know, some characters that showed up sometimes in Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, that glorious Waka Chicka soundtrack 70s cartoon. And Iceman's powers seemed so fun with all the ice slides. He was a witty jokester, which sort of I really wanted to be. When I got a little older in my adolescence, it was Archangel. He had a cool design. He was badass. He was edgy. He was like dark. And I really wanted to be taken seriously at the time. And well, people take you seriously, even if you're wearing blue and pink, as long as you have big wing blades that you can cut their heads off with. Do they, though? I mean, yeah, I don't know. I guess it depends on how they feel about Hawks. But when I was a grown up, long shot all the way. He's earnest and he's charming, like. I want to be, and he had powers that rewarded his intentions, and that just seemed so, so beautiful, the idea that you could care so much that you could alter reality. As I've gotten a little older than that, as I'm approaching middle age, terrifyingly, I mean, still all of those previous characters, but first of all, on a practical level, I really envy multiple man's powers. I could use that ability to do time management better. 
And I find that Rogue is a character I connect with more and more that I've sort of grown into fandom of. I really appreciate her multifaceted complexity, her challenges balancing care and thoughtfulness with passion and emotion. I love that her life is really hard and she works really hard to manage it, basically. For me, my favorite characters very much came out of my favorite books initially. So originally, Shadowcat was my favorite, hands down easily, because the Shadowcat I was used to was the Shadowcat of Alan Davis's Excalibur, an obviously favorite character. And I've talked a lot about relating to her as a teenager, too. Um, the more I read, and especially the more Claremont, early mid-Claremont I read, I'm, I, and the more overarching X-Men over long, long periods of time I read, the more Cyclops became the the character who I who I identify with and her and my my sort of tongue in cheek favorite, and I think that's partly been a product of of growing up and hitting a point where the characters who were my favorites were the characters I, I I identified with, not the characters I identified aspirationally with, mm. and um, partly just reading more material and seeing more good stuff because the thing about the X Men is that you can have you know, two people can have the same favorite character for entirely different sets of reasons if they came into the comics at entirely different points or the media at different points. I'm trying to think of other characters. There are, there are a lot of characters who I've come to appreciate a lot more. I mean, I think I think Cable is definitely one who I started out thinking was ridiculous and grew to really like. Shatterstar is a more recent example of that. Um, Shadowcat and uh, Cypher and Warlock and Magic, I think, have been consistent favorites pretty much along the entire time I've been reading. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, do you ever see yourselves going back and covering the Silver Age or Wolverine issues that you skipped? Um, maybe some of them, maybe sometimes. But, I mean, I think ultimately there's always a chance that we'll go back to things. There's always... The, the great part about being our own boss is that we ultimately do get to choose what we cover when we cover, and that includes the option of going back to anything we think is cool or we think that we want to take another look at. So if you like our choices, then hey, thanks. If you dislike our choices, it was probably Mystique disguised as us. I mean, isn't it always? An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Is there anything you were surprised to see people connect with because it was just something that came naturally to you? Were there any mistakes you made, had to learn from, and feel comfortable talking about? I mean, I was really taken aback at the extent to which people connected with us. Um, <laughs> as Yeah, no, seriously, like, as far as I saw it, um, when we went in, like, we were primarily vehicles for the main actual interest of the podcast, which was the discussion of and, and sort of deep dives into X-Men continuity. And the fact that there were people talking about and talking to and thinking about us and our voices and our dynamic as as the the center of the podcast really threw me for a loop. I was absolutely shocked by that and really, really freaked out by it for a really long time. Uh, no, fair enough, fair enough. And I mean, I guess we at least a little bit knew what we were getting into there. I mean, we put our names right in the title of, of the show, but that was definitely a surprise. As far as incontinuity stuff, I was a little surprised but took it as a challenge how much um, – some people just weren't really into the spinoff books. Like a lot of people were here for X-Men, not for, say, New Mutants, which was always my personal favorite. So it became like a personal mission to just take my sheer love for the New Mutants and just push that out into the world through this show. Something that for me really stuck out and, and surprised me pretty early on um, was the extent to which every character is somebody's favorite. Like, I, I sort of knew that in theory, but... 
I didn't realize quite how intensely it played out in practice. Yeah, I remember um, specifically at the recent live episode we did, the panel was talking about finding the intense Nate Gray fandom and finding out that they not only are intense, but like exist. As far as mistakes, we've been very, very lucky in terms of having a listener base who's been really great about letting us know when we've slipped in terms of things like inclusive language and given us, you know, the opportunities to correct that going forward. Uh, You've done that a few times. I'm not going to go back over the examples because I honestly don't want to rehash that language. Um, but that's something that that's 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 again come up a few times and in really consistently really civil ways, and that we really appreciate having had the chance to learn from. Definitely, Echo Spider asks on Tumblr: Has there been a character, story, arc, or creator that once revisited through the lens of the podcast you have changed your initial impressions of? If so, how, who, what, and why? Oh man, X-Force obviously is is kind of the big one for me. But in general, I think Cable has been as as a character one of one of the bigger sort of slow turns for me. For me, it's actually something a little more vague and ephemeral. Um, the post-Outback no-team era of Uncanny X-Men, where it was just like, you know, Wolverine and Psylocke and Jubilee doing their thing, and like, you know, Havoc waking up in Genosha, and just all the characters all scattered around, like Storm and Gambit hanging out when Storm was de-aged. I still don't know that it necessarily works as an era. I don't think it's as engaging as when X-Men was a more traditional book, but I have a lot of respect for what Chris Claremont was trying to do for the fact that he was a writer who just refused to let himself get into a rut. He always wanted his characters to change, yes, like, you know, trying to push Cyclops out of the team after Gene seems to die on the moon. But he also always wanted the book to change. He never wanted it to be formulaic. And in retrospect, like, mad props to Chris Claremont for so many things, but especially for that, because that's not something you see very often in such a mainstream superhero universe. Brett Blevins on New Mutants, I think, was another one for me. He was an artist who I really side-eyed hard initially because I was coming out of Sienkiewicz. And they're very, 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 very different. And going back and reading through the stuff again with a more seasoned eye, like, I I feel like I, I appreciate his work on a level that I really, really couldn't have before. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, why do no governments ever use sentinels for non-mutant hunting purposes, like using them as drones to bomb their human enemies or some other morally dubious thing? They would clearly have no moral qualms about it since they're willing to use giant robots as tools of genocide, so it seems like a waste of giant robots. Okay, anonymous listener, I will see you and raise that, the question, why don't they use sentinels for search and rescue? Because they are designed in ways that would make them absolutely ideal for that. They key in on genetic signatures, they key in on signs of life, they're huge, they can move rubble, they can they can move incredibly quickly, they're, they're good for trans, uh, you know, transporting people over long distances quickly, like they are so much better for that than they are as offensive weaponry. But, I mean, I see what the listener is is getting at. Like, if you're already enough of a jerk to use them for killing all the mutants, like, you could probably use them for other jerky things. But I think this is kind of an example of something that comes up a lot in comics, where every plot point, every new technology, every social change, it's all about the characters or the central premise of the comic rather than bleeding into normal life. I mean, okay, the way I always look at it, The Marvel Universe is a world with commonplace, reliable, and user-friendly freaking jetpacks. Why aren't people taking jetpacks to, like, their office jobs? Why are they rollerblading as rad as rollerblading is when they could be, I don't know, jetpack blading? That sounds like something you would do in 90s comics, right? 
Oh, see, based on the people who have them, I assume that the jetpacks are wildly unreliable. Oh, okay. And like risky prototypes. Okay, gotcha. So you only have people like, you know, Nick Fury or Nighthawk or other people with sort of iffy judgment who are willing to strap one of those things onto their back. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I feel like we digressed, but um, we stand by it. Another anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I've been watching Leverage because of you all, and who is the chaos of the X-Men universe so I can hate them the right amount? It's Fitzroy, right? It is not Fitzroy Anonymous. I'm sorry, I hate to break this to you, but the the lever- the character in the Marvel Universe who is to the X-Men as Chaos is to Team Leverage is Quentin Quire. It's, I'm sorry, it's absolutely Quentin Quire. That said, if you want to hate Trevor Fitzroy, we give you official podcast permission. He is such a jerk. Right? The worst. Let's see, uh, Asimov Fangirl asks on Tumblr, Some of my favorite episodes are the ones where you tell talk not very well-known X-Men stories, Beauty and the Beast, The Iceman Mini, Tattoo Tales, X-Men Masquerade, etc. So I always wondered, how do you get to find those and what factors into choosing them to talk about in an episode? So we find them a few different ways. Um, One way that we found actually quite a few things is comicsbackissues.com's complete X-Men reading order, which is a resource we rely on a lot for choosing, you know, how to interlace our episodes from different books. But it also tells us about things we didn't really know existed. Like, I'm pretty sure that's where we found the original Iceman miniseries. Some things were comics that, like, I or we or you had been aware of before and we just never gotten around to reading. Like, I remember seeing ads in old 80s comics for the Beauty and the Beast miniseries. I just didn't have it. My father had never bought it. I couldn't find back issues anywhere. And so the podcast was a good opportunity to finally dig into that glorious banana story. Or the X-Men at the Texas State Fair is kind of legendary at this point. Right. Um, As for the X-Men Masquerade Tattoo Tales book, a listener sent us that. It was nice. And our friend Max of Waiting for the Trade and Welcome to Storybrooke sent us the Days of Future Past picture book adaptation. So yeah, we find those via a ton of different avenues. Some of them are from friends, some of them are for listeners, some of them are from our collections, some of them are from just putting unlikely phrases into Google and going through the results, which I end up doing a lot of. That is a risky but ultimately rewarding method. Transkinney asks, would Maddie Pryor and Laura Kenny get along? I don't think they would. I feel bad about this. I feel like they would connect. And and, and I'm, I'm thinking of them as written in their Canon 616 versions. I think they would connect. But I think that ultimately they come from different enough philosophical places and ethical places that they would end up at best respectfully at odds. You know, I kind of see it differently. I feel like if we take the not quite as self-actualized as she is right now, Laura Kinney, like the one that actually went by X-23 back in the day, and transplanted her into the Inferno era, she would see a woman who had been used by the people around her and whose every attempt to attain individuality had been poisoned, and either she would find a way to talk Madeline down and Inferno would end very differently, or she would end up, like, murdering all the X-Men for Maddie. I feel like they could work really well together back then. The thing is, I think they would get along to a point. Like, I think she would absolutely, if you're talking about an early post, post-escape post Laura, I think she would she would identify with some of Madeline's goals and she'd help her with them. But there's a point where Madeline crosses the line between revenge and destroying the world and i feel like for instance laura is not going to be super into infanticide 
Could we at least agree that regardless of how the rest of it went, Laura would tell Maddie that, like, maybe she should wear a slightly different cape? I feel like Laura's practical. Laura is practical, but I think she'd also entirely respect the um, style over substance choice on that part. Like, she gets the value of effectively intimidating tatters. Well, there you go. So those are the questions we have time to answer right now, but we actually have a question for you, lovely listeners. We're wondering, um, we've talked about our favorite stuff that we've covered, our favorite stories and our favorite episodes, and we're curious about yours. If you want to let us know in the comments to this episode and let fellow listeners who might be just coming in know what you think is worth going back to, we'd love to see Exactly, yeah. It's kind of always cool seeing what resonates with other folks and how much that does or doesn't line up with what resonates with us. So, yes, get on the comments on the blog, get on social media, whatever, and tell us things. Tell each other things. Now, normally this is where we would do thanks to Patreon supporters, but we have a lot of people we want to thank here. So, first of all, everyone who's listening out there, everyone who has listened to the show from the start, especially the folks who support us, support us on Patreon, the folks who just tuned in for a couple episodes, the folks who are here for your very first time. Thank you so much for coming and being part of this long, weird journey with us. Very, very much so, yeah. Like, it seriously wouldn't be worth it without all of you out there, and I'm so, so glad you're all here. Yeah, also, thank you to the four producers we've worked with over the show, from our first producer, Bobby Roberts, to Kyle Yount, Kurt Lloyd, and our current producer, the amazing Matt Hunter. Yeah, speaking of people that the show uh, not necessarily wouldn't exist with, but wouldn't really um, be listenable to by anyone who didn't have extreme, extreme stamina. It's true, we're terrible. And David Wynn, our artist who's been with us for so much of the show. Like, the Jay and Miles feel, I think, is, is visually defined by Dave, and I'm so glad he's been working with us for so long. All of the amazing guests who've been on our show over the years, I was going to make an entire list, but um, there have been a lot, and they're all fantastic. Seriously, they make awesome X-Men, and then they want to talk to us about it. That's pretty cool. And all of the guest experts who've lent us your expertise and your resources in answering questions about everything from the eye killers to nuclear reactors. <laughs> right. And also, we've thanked them before, but we have to again. Our partners, uh, Jay, your wife T, and my partner Anna, put up with so, so much. We spend a lot of time and do a lot of travel and stuff around this show, and they are so ridiculously supportive and also just, like, awesome. Right, and there are so many other people, the friends who've helped us put together events, the folks who've hosted them um, at places like the Stephen Thorny Way to Heaven and Phoenix Comics, books with pictures, and Katie Proctor, who post who hosted our review videos for ages and was our home, it really kind of still is our home comic shop, even though I live across the country. Um, man, this yeah, this is the the X Men is very much a show about or a series and a comic about found family and about, you know, coming together as eclectic outcasts and weirdos toward a common cause. And looking back at the last five years, um, that's definitely something that this podcast has, has felt like. We might be the ones with our names in the title, but honestly, there are a lot of people, a whole lot of people in positions where if you took even one of them away, the show wouldn't be close to what it is. Very much so. And also, Jay, I wanted to just thank you for doing this show with me for five years. It's been, it's covered a lot of different eras of our lives, but it's been consistently awesome to be able to like share this thing we love and make stupid jokes about it almost every week for the last half decade with you. Right, back at you, dude. 
Ah, thank you. And I should say also at this point, um, every time I go back, it's super weird. But um, for, for folks who are listening who've come into this through the LGBT community, you can get over the last, um, starting in, in late August of um, 2018, no, 2017, late August of 2017, you can, th- this show is one of the more coherent ongoing week to week records of someone's voice dropping on T. So that's a thing too now. <laughs> right? Come for the X-Men, stay for all sorts of other stuff. Right? Bonus. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by the amazing Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, lace up your best metal boots and dust off your favorite deck of cards. It gambit time! Oh no, Miles, I just realized. What is it? We forgot to mention the most important man in the Marvel Universe. Uh, curses! It must have been the music. It made us think we'd tick that box. It's, it's okay, we can fix this. It'll be a tag. Way back in episode 17, we met a man. An amazing man. A brilliant man. With a very nice hat. That man has been with us in spirit, or on the page, ever since. Guiding our hands. Blessing our messes. Presiding over our annual awards. Possibly captaining an alternate universe version of educational science vessel, the Mimi. That man is... Super Doctor Astronaut, Peter Corbeau. Oh, damn it! Did we forget Harvey and Janet, too? Oh, God, we totally did. Ah, uh, well, we'll catch him next time. <laughs>